You can be turning to 1 Peter in your Bible. Today is an introduction, getting to know Peter. We'll get to know his the recipients of this particular 1 Peter letter more next week. But today I want to give, as Jason was saying, just kind of some background and some history on Peter. Because it helps to understand the author of a, no, of a letter, a book, to really understand why he wrote it. It helps to understand the era in which it was written. And it helps understand who it was written to. It helps us identify some major themes and that sort of a thing. And so we're going to turn from looking in the Old Testament at the book of Psalms for almost a year to the shadows of the Savior from our Advent study where we looked at different prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament. And we're going to move into uh, a New Testament book, First and Second Peter. And Peter was an especially important figure in the early church. In the first century, there's a lot to be said about Peter because guess what? The gospel writers have a lot to say about Peter. In fact, Peter is mentioned besides Jesus more than any other person in the New Testament. Peter speaks more than any other person in the gospels besides Jesus, which that's probably not hard to imagine if you know anything about Peter. Something you might not have thought about before is that Jesus speaks to Peter more than any other person in the New Testament. So, here's a couple more interesting things about Peter. Jesus rebuked Peter more than any other disciple. (laughs) Peter actually thought, is the only one who thought it was a good idea to rebuke Jesus as well. Uh, Peter confessed Jesus more boldly and passionately and accurately than any other disciple, but he also denied Jesus more forcefully and publicly than any other disciple. Jesus praised Peter more than any other of his followers, more than any other disciple. But Peter is also the only one that Jesus addressed as Satan. So take that for what it is. Um, are any of you like Peter a little bit? Uh, in the sense that your mouth tends to go before your brain sometimes? You don't have to raise your hand. I see some of you confessing already. That's okay. Uh, Peter was like that, right? He, he was a bit impulsive. His mouth got him into trouble a lot of times. Um, you might even say he kind of attended the school of hard knocks on what not to do oftentimes. And maybe that's you. Maybe it's not so much you at this point. But Peter certainly was the guy who seemed to act before he thought a lot of times. And you know what's interesting about that? Jesus doesn't seem too put off by it. Now, certainly there was correction that was made, but he doesn't seem to be too put off by Peter's um, rashness. In fact, many of the things that Jesus taught were opportunities that were presented because of Peter's big mouth. Okay, so think about some of these with me. When teaching about faith, Peter threw his nets over the side of the boat after not catching anything. Right, And Jesus told him to, and Peter said, look, we've been out there fishing all night and haven't caught anything, but because you said so, I'll do it. And you guys know the story. The nets almost were breaking that they couldn't contain so many fish. In another teaching moment about faith in Matthew 14, Peter was the only disciple, as Jason mentioned, who stepped out of the boat to walk on the water with Jesus. When Jesus taught some really hard stuff about his death, 
Peter was the guy who spoke up for the group. And he said in John chapter 6, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus responds and said, Peter, you didn't come up with that yourself. That was given to you by the spirit. Peter was also the guy who asked how many times he had to forgive his brother. And I almost wonder if there was some conflict that Peter was in, maybe with somebody else, maybe with one of the other disciples. I don't know. He said, Jesus, how many times do I forgive this guy? And you guys know the story. Jesus taught about forgiveness. And he said, you know, hey, remember, think about this story. And he told the story of the unmerciful servant who wouldn't forgive his brother a little bitty thing, but his master had forgiven him tons. And so he taught about forgiveness. In John chapter 13, Jesus was saying, hey, I need to wash your feet for you to be one with me. And Peter was the guy who said, no, you're not going to wash my feet. You're not going to stoop that low and do that. And Jesus said, well, if I don't, you have no part of me. And Peter said, oh, okay, well, then wash my whole body. He wasn't, it wasn't getting it. But Jesus taught about service and humility. Then in John 18, as we get closer to Jesus' death, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Judas comes and betrays Jesus with a kiss. And what does Peter do? Well, it says he, he took his sword. He came prepared. He took his sword and he was trying to defend Jesus. And he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus had to miraculously reattach it. And he taught Peter. He said, my kingdom doesn't come that way, Peter. It doesn't come with the sword. In John chapter 21, Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter, or I'm sorry, Jesus had already told Peter this would happen and Peter was aghast. I mean, he could not believe that Jesus would think he would do that. He said, no way. I'll die before that happens. Well, it's not what happened. I think it's interesting to note, and maybe we'll get there at some point in this series, but it's interesting to note that Jesus restored Peter publicly after he returned, rose from the dead. Peter was one of three disciples who Jesus took to see him transfigured. Only one of three. Peter was not as fast as John when they heard that Jesus' body wasn't in the tomb anymore. He and John took off to go see if it was true. And John beat him there, but Peter was the one who went in first. It's also interesting to note that the gospel writers report that Simon, or Peter, he was one of the first, if not the first, disciple called by Jesus out of all of them. So let me say this. If you are sometimes impulsive, If sometimes your mouth gets you into trouble, you're actually in pretty good company with Peter. But I don't think we would always describe Peter this way. If we kind of fast forward after the resurrection, after Christ's ascension back into heaven, Peter became known as one of the most consistent and effective preachers in the first century. Peter didn't back down from anything. He was a preacher on the day of Pentecost, if you'll remember, when 3,000 plus believers were added to the church in Acts chapter 2. He was the preacher, very eloquently preaching the story. He and John were imprisoned in Acts chapter 4, and you know what they did? They preached the gospel to their captors. The religious elite were so astonished when this sort of thing happened, because they, they knew Peter. He was a, he was a smelly fisherman back in the day. How can he speak like this? They thought, how does he have, we know that these are uneducated men, these chief priests and Pharisees said. How are they doing this? How do they speak this way? 
Regardless, they said, hey, cut it out. Right? We're going to let you go because we're afraid of the mob that would come up after us if we did something worse. But stop talking about Jesus. Cut it out. To which John and Peter specifically replied, they said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than him, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We can't help it. As the church continued to grow, Peter and the apostles, they were put in prison multiple times again and again. And in response in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, Peter spoke up for the group again. You can see he's kind of the mouthpiece a lot of times for the group. He said, we must obey God rather than men. What a statement. Coming from a guy who had not long before denied Christ, very publicly, very forcefully. Guess what happened when he said that? We must obey God rather than men. They beat him. They let him go, but they beat him. Arrests, threats, even beatings couldn't pour cold water on Peter's resolve to preach Christ crucified. So we can learn a lot of things from the life of Peter. And there's just five quick ones that I want to mention to you. We learn from the life of Peter that Jesus forgives. Despite Peter's unfaithfulness, Jesus restored him. And as we can see, he used him in mighty ways. Secondly, Jesus is patient. For those of you who live with a person whose mouth gets them in trouble sometimes, you're probably a more patient person because of it. Jesus was patient. Peter needed correction, didn't he? Over and over again he needed it. And Jesus provided based on his love for Peter. Peter wasn't a perfect student, but he was willing to learn. Thirdly, Jesus overcomes fear, right? Peter looked at the raging storm and the winds and the waves, and what did he do? He stepped out anyway. And when his eyes were focused on Jesus, he didn't fall. But when he began to look around at the surrounding things, that's when he began to slip. But Peter found courage in following Christ. Fourthly, Jesus sees us not always for who we are, but who he intends us to be. Surely when he called Peter as one of the first, if not the first disciple, he knew everything that would happen in Peter's future, how it was going to unfold, and he knew who Peter would be. And that's why he called him. Jesus saw this man not just as Simon, but as Peter the rock, as one who would be building the church. Peter was rough around the edges, as we can surmise. He was pretty impulsive and reckless sometimes, didn't know how to keep his mouth shut, but Jesus saw a firm and faithful rock, even at the beginning. Fifthly, Jesus uses unworthy people. This is something I think that we can all take hope in. Because of his willingness to learn and follow, Jesus shaped Peter into a bold and fearless preacher of the gospel. You're going to throw me in prison? I'll preach to the guards. You're going you're gonna to beat me and my friends? I'm going to go preach even louder. This was his mindset in the end. This is, I think, also what spoke the loudest to the people who opposed him. We find in Acts 4.13 that these they knew that this was just a simple, ordinary guy. He had been a fisherman. He had been on the seas. But it had been obvious that he had been with Jesus. That's such a cool statement to describe somebody. That's how I hope that people describe me when I'm gone. I knew that guy had been with Jesus. I knew that he knew Jesus. That's what Peter was known for. 
He had been with Jesus. Now, it seems like Peter was really unquestionably a leader in the church after Jesus had left earth. He didn't have to do anything special, Peter didn't, to explain or justify his apostleship. He didn't add a phrase like Paul does at the beginning of a lot of his letters that says, by the will of God. The early church just recognized Peter as a leader immediately. In fact, Paul calls him a pillar of the church in Galatians chapter 2. James and John are included there as well. But as we know, Peter wasn't a perfect guy. Even after he had been with Jesus, he wasn't a perfect apostle. Paul reports a situation in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, where Peter came to Antioch and he was enjoying fellowship with Gentile believers there, and that was a great thing. But then some legalistic Jews came and they were separating themselves from the Gentiles and Peter slipped into that method and began to separate from the Gentiles as well. And Paul saw this as hypocrisy and he called Peter out on it in front of everybody. He said, what you're doing is wrong. In fact, he says specifically, he said, what you're doing is not in step with the truth of the gospel. This is what he said. Growing pains. It happens. Peter was growing. So, in fact, maybe we're all a little more like Peter than we originally thought. So let's shift just for a moment from looking at who Peter was to some of his writings. And I want to just kind of give us a flavor of what we're in for from First Peter chapter 2. We're going to go through these books in succession. They were written for different purposes, which I'll mention in just a moment. But I want to read through chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 9, 10, 11, and 12, actually. These verses kind of encompass a lot of what Peter is communicating in First Peter, and so they are good to read together today on an introduction day. Verse 9 of chapter 2, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How does he describe God's people in these verses? Several different ways, and we'll look at these fully when we get to this part of chapter 2. But he describes them as sojourners, exiles, visitors, temporary residents. Now, he wrote these first two Letters or epistles, as they're sometimes called, probably sometime between A.D. 60 and 68. There's a little bit of um, variation of belief on when this exactly was written. I think there's evidence to show that this was written during this time frame, A.D. 60 to 68. Peter probably wrote both of these letters from Rome after he was called to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So at, at that time in Rome's history, who was in charge? Anybody know? Not a great guy, Nero. 
guy who hated Christians. There was a great fire that broke out in AD 64. Nero blamed the Christians. It destroyed a lot of Rome. Uh, there's some evidence that it might have even been Nero himself who started that fire and then blamed Rome. There's one re- historical report that says he was out playing a stringed instru- instrument while, the, while Rome was burning. And yet he blamed the Christians. And there was intense persecution in the center of Rome for a while, and it kind of was on the outskirts to some degree as well, almost the whole time. Peter wrote during this time frame, it's, it's likely that he wrote First Peter just before the Great Fire, possibly Second Peter right after, but it's all in that time frame together. The major theme of First Peter is pretty simple, and I, I tried to illustrate that with the the picture on our screen this morning. You can see it's a lighthouse being bombarded with waves. This, this communicates, hopefully you can see the idea of Christians withstanding and holding firm against persecution. First Peter was written to encourage Christians who are under the threat of persecution, reminding them of their hope in their salvation, both now and then in eternity. Second Peter was written to warn the same believers of the danger of false teachers, harmful influences, and that the grace of God transforms and empowers Christians to live righteously even in the face of opposition. So we'll expand on those things as we move through these letters in the weeks to come. If you've got my notes this morning, there's a lot of blanks on there. We're going to fill those in pretty quickly here. If you want to keep up with those, you're welcome to. Peter's letters were more than just friendly notes of encouragement, though. They were to teach Christians how to live as missionaries. Now, that there's a risk of that being an oversimplification of what Peter was trying to do here. But I think that really is a good way that we go into thinking about this whole thing, especially 1 Peter. He was giving instruction on how, for, how Christians live as missionaries, Dr. Eckerd Schnabel describes how Peter instructed his readers residing in a non-Christian society on how to live as a new community of people who have a noticeably different lifestyle than the people around them. That was the point. Now, I think that the language that Peter uses convinces us that his readers were primarily Gentiles, not exclusively, but primarily Gentiles. And there's Theologians and, and commentators that disagree with that. They say he's more a pastor to the, the Jews. I think if we look at some of the references that we've, we see in this, che- in this book specifically, he says he, he references his readers' former ignorance, their feudal ways that were inherited from their forefathers, and some other things. I think these are indications that he was writing to Gentiles who did not have a Jewish upbringing. If that was Jews he was talking about, it wouldn't quite fit, I don't think. So surely there were Jewish readers that would read these letters. So when Peter uses the terms that we read in Second Peter, or First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 12, we have to understand that these are figurative language words, not literal. So he's, he's not using the term exile as literal necessarily. He's not using... Uh, Sojourner as a literal term, but figurative. And to prove this point, Christians are spiritual exiles awaiting their heavenly inheritance. It was mentioned in Jason's Sunday School class this morning. Our citizenship does not lie here on earth. 
It lies in heaven. Now, some of you guys might have uh, heard the name Danny Aiken. He's not any kind of relation to you guys, distant down the road probably. Uh, Danny Aiken is, a, is currently the president of Southeastern Seminary over in North Carolina. He's been a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention, which our church is a part of. And he has had a hand in editing and writing some of the Christ-centered commentaries that uh, we've used here for small groups and, and to preach with, actually. Um, on top of that, uh, Danny Aiken has a son named Paul Aiken. So it's funny that the Aiken family is here today. Not the Paul Aiken that we know and love, but a different Paul Aiken. And he's a guy who works at the International Mission Board. He's a guy, I think, around my age. He has, I read an article of his this week, and he has a really unique and insightful and I think helpful perspective on tracing global missions through the Bible. And I want to just kind of share with you guys four themes that he points out in First and Second Peter that were really helpful in, help, in my mindset going into how we want to study this. So there's four things. You can see them in your notes. The first one, first theme is identity. Peter's primary concern in First Peter especially is, number one, who God's people are. Number two, how they are to live out their new identity in front of an unbelieving world as God's holy people. That's a big theme in First Peter. He emphasizes this new identity in a special way, and he uses terms like exiles. Some of your versions may say aliens or sojourners. I'll use the term temporary residents, okay? It's important to see that their new identity as temporary residents Though it didn't mean a retreat from society. Just because he said they were going to be here for a moment, for a short time, they, this wasn't their permanent dwelling, didn't mean that they withdraw at all. It didn't mean a departure. It certainly didn't mean isolation from society around them. The temporary resident nature of these Christians in that area of Asia Minor didn't produce any kind of escapist mentality in them either. They weren't to disengage with the culture around them. On the contrary, Peter was explaining their new identity in order to propel them out into the culture and to be salt and to be light and to be the light of the gospel to the people around them. The church's mission wasn't just to recluse back into itself at all. Brothers and sisters, our church's mission is not to recluse back into ourselves at all. It's the same. It's to be light to the nations. Revealing the glory of God. So I, I love how the author here, Paul Aiken, explains it. He says, fundamentally, we're in term, we are in terms of our identity as Christians. Let me start that over. Who we are in terms of our identity as Christians shapes the course of our mission. Who we are, our identity is key here. And Peter starts with that and he takes it through his whole uh, first letter here in first peter understanding our identity as just temporary residents called to live a life of holiness is the place where we begin if we are to effectively live in a world as christ sent out ones that's who we are sent out into the world and this brings us to the second theme of lifestyle this is pretty closely connected to identity but it really flows out of our identity. It's this desire to live a holy life 
to live a lifestyle that is noticeably different from the world around us. This is an important statement that I want you to hear. This is in our note, in your notes too. Who we are determines how we live. Let that sink in for just a minute. Who we are in Christ determines how we live in the world. Peter underlined the gospel impact of Christian community engaging in a lifestyle of righteousness, of doing good. He, he emphasizes how a godly lifestyle impacts a watching world. That's why, as we read, he said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against you. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when you, they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. How you live, brothers and sisters in Christ, is a hu- has a huge impact on the world around you. And Peter understood that, and Peter was communicating that to the people who would read this letter. Christians don't only share the gospel through their lifestyle, though. They do there's been lots of famous people that have said sometimes the only gospel that people hear is your life. In a lot of ways that's true. But that's not the only way that Peter is going to tell us that we preach the gospel. This leads us to our third theme of message. There is a message that Christians proclaim. Peter agrees with Paul in this and every other biblical author that verbal proclamation, verbal preaching of the gospel is central to a Christian's witness, central to a Christian's identity in the world. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is chapter 2, verse 9 again. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim means to publish, to announce, to celebrate. You do this with your lifestyle. Brothers and sisters, absolutely you do, you should. But we also are called to do this with our voice, with what we say. What you proclaim with your lips matters, and what you proclaim with your mouth, with your life, matters too. You can't separate the witness of your life and your words. They go together. People that try to do that, People that try to say one thing and live another, we have a word for them that you all know. It's hypocrite. And not one of you wants to be referred to as a hypocrite. And so Peter is going to go and tell us and explain, in order to avoid hypocrisy, your life and your words have to go together. They have to match. One author I read said, those who have been changed by the gospel cannot help but speak up and share the gospel. Kids, let me read that again for you. Those who have been changed by the gospel cannot help but speak up and share the gospel. They go together. And we see this played out in Peter's own life, especially when persecuted. It's kind of like if you took an orange and you squeezed it really hard, what comes out? You mean ice cream doesn't come out? Apple juice doesn't come out? No. Orange juice comes out because it's an orange. When Christians are persecuted and they're squeezed, what is to come out? More of Christ. Because we belong to him. 
Living a lifestyle that is countercultural makes you stand out to the world around you, right? But isn't that the point? Isn't that the point of what Peter's getting at here? Is that you're supposed to look different. You're supposed to act different. The difference of how we live then opens the door to our verbal testimony to those who wonder why we do the things that we do. A little bit forward in 1 Peter chapter 3.15 is a, a verse you may have heard before. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be ready, he said. Christians live this way because of the hope that they have within them. And that's the fourth theme that we see throughout First and Second Peter is hope. In fact, hope and suffering are like twins in Peter's mind. They go together. They're referenced really at least 10 times, suffering and hope together. And it's interesting, I was reading R.C. Sproul this week, I was, he mentioned just the fact that Peter at the beginning was offended that Jesus said he was going to have to suffer and die. And he rebuked Jesus for saying those sorts of things. But then by the end, they're together in Peter's mind. He couldn't even separate them. I don't think Peter even shies away from this in, in these letters. He kind of clings to it. He leans into it. He's clear about it. If you follow Christ in this world, you will suffer. Now, for Peter's immediate readers, that could have very well included physical persecution, imprisonment, beatings, loss of job, loss of family. Not always, but it could have. The difference is, the important part is, is that Christians, those who follow Christ, they may endure suffering, but they never have to endure suffering without hope. Author Gordon Kirk says this, slander, insult, persecution, trouble, affliction, or any type of suffering is just limited, limited to the temporal realm. A future inheritance is yet to come. Hope or something to look forward to, gives people reason for enduring hardships. Listen to this. Christians have the invincible promise of ultimate victory, which cultivates unwavering endurance. We have the invincible promise of victory, which, if we let it sink in and take root, cultivates unwavering endurance through it all. There's a hopeful promise that Peter lays out all throughout his writings. It's the hope of heaven and the promise of a renewed and restored earth. He talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 3. This is what I think enables Christians to endure suffering, to endure hardship in this life because that there's something better waiting. There's something better in store than even the best stuff we have here on earth, but certainly better than the hard stuff that we endure Christians, I hope that as we study First and Second Peter together in the coming months, that you will be encouraged, that you'll be equipped to faithfully share with both your lifestyle and your mouth the true gospel of full redemption in Christ. As Peter says at the end of Second Peter, he says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. That's what I hope for us as we go through First and Second Peter, is that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those of you listening this morning who maybe you don't know Jesus, whether that's an act that you put on when you come to church or whether you just come out of obligation or whether you just come because you have to, whatever the case might be, I want you to know something. First and Second Peter is still for you. God's word, the gospel, is still for you. God's calling you, as we already read this morning, out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're not currently a person who knows God. You haven't yet received his mercy, but you can take it and you can be a part of his people today. He says that in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. That can be true of you today. Look at 1 Peter chapter chapter 1. Look at verse just 3 and 4 with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. These verses affirm, according to the great mercy of God, that you can be born again to a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because he overcame death and the grave and sin on our behalf, you can now be born again to a living hope. You can now be considered part of God's people God's personal family. The inheritance that his people get is one we just read. It's imperishable, undefiled and unfading. And it's kept in heaven by the power of God himself. There's no better place for us to put something that's really valuable, but in the hands of God. So the question that we ask as we close this morning is, is he your living hope? Is he our living hope? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, friends listening this morning, today doesn't have to be a day that you end in despair and darkness. You can be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his light through faith by grace. You can do it today. Let's pray. Father, this inheritance is something that we're going to look into more because it gives such confidence, not in ourselves. Lord, uh, as an inheritance, we don't work to earn that. We just receive it. And Lord, salvation is this way. We simply receive the gift that you have given and you have given the greatest gift of all, your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, my hope and prayer is that as we go through these books, these letters of Peter, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged to speak truth, to do it in love, and that our lives and our words might indicate that we are different, that we are just passing through, that we are temporary residents, but even in that, Lord, you've given us good work to do. 
You have called us out of the darkness into the light, into a family. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today who feels like they don't have a family that they can go to to be comforted and encouraged and be held accountable to, Lord, I pray that they might put their faith in Jesus today and be welcomed into your family. Because of the goodness of Christ and what he has done, Lord, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.